I'd like to uh, introduce Mike Riccardi. Uh, and as I'm doing that, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, Michael, in a moment, will be preaching from Philippians chapter 1. What is Christianity? Well, um, Mike uh, grew up, uh, he's a local uh, Central Jersey uh, man, and he grew up here. And uh, he's, uh, at some point in his life, the Lord uh, took him and brought him out to uh, California, and he went to the Master's Seminary. And he graduated this past May, but he is staying there as a, a pastor of local church outreach uh, on staff there at Grace Community Church, as well as pursuing uh, a doctorate there, a uh, continued degree at the Master's Seminary. And so we are real blessed to have him here this morning, he did a question-answer session on Strange Fire-related topic, Strange Fire Conference-related topic, and uh, we'll be preaching this morning. But um, one question some, uh, a couple of you have asked me is, uh, uh, how did we come to know Mike? And um, well, there are some, as you may know, that uh, within the body here who have been here at Calvary for a couple years uh, who know Mike from a previous church. Uh, the Picatolis, as well as Francisco, and uh, and so they uh, know him, grew up with him, and but uh, how did uh, we, uh, Pastor and myself, how did actually how did I uh, come to be aware of who Mike was? Well, uh, go back twenty years, and um, uh, actually it was more than that, maybe more like twenty five, twenty three, twenty four years uh, at work where I was working. I had recently come to know the Lord, and there was a gentleman there who introduced me uh, to uh, John MacArthur, and he was on the radio at the time, and so I, I mean, introduced me in terms of listening to the ministry, and so uh, I really liked uh, the teaching there, and uh, we both uh, would uh, uh, use some of his materials in uh, having, kind of, we started, basically we started a Bible study at work, and um, and so we had that Bible study, and there was a, a, a gentleman that walked into the Bible study uh, at some point, and um, his name was Joe Riccardi. And, uh, and uh, I can't remember all the details here, <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't want to be making anything up. But um, he, uh, uh, he was he attended the Bible study for some years back, I think probably the early 90s, and um, we would use some of John MacArthur's material in teaching um, the Bible study, um, and uh, and so I believe that was probably where Joe heard about John MacArthur and the ministry of Grace to You. Of course, they didn't have all the downloads and everything at the time, but they, he was on the radio. So um, my guess is uh, Joe listened to uh, John MacArthur on the radio at home with the family and brought some of the things that we taught back home, and uh, and so um, Mike was introduced to John MacArthur and that ministry uh, some years ago, and. Uh, then just a couple years ago, I saw uh, Joe in the mall, and this is all, of course, God's providence at work here, and um, uh, I heard that one of his sons was at the Master Seminary. Uh, it, was, it was a real blessing. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, just uh, earlier this year, uh, our work kind of rearranged itself, and uh, we got new offices, and I hadn't seen Joe in, in quite a while, and his office ended up right next to my office. And so um, I started talking to him, and we thought, wow, would it be great to have uh, uh, Mike come here and, and preach. And so he's here today, and I um, want to welcome you and preach the Word of God this morning. Well, thank you to Dwayne, and is this mic working? Yeah, here we go. And good morning to all of you. I bring you greetings from John MacArthur and the pastors and elders of Grace Community Church. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll have to excuse me. Uh, that, uh, that third song there, Greg, um, was wonderful, and so if I'm sniffling a little bit, you know, please excuse me about that. That's, uh, that's Greg's fault. Um, <laughs> it's such a joy to be able to travel 3,000 miles across an entire country and have fellowship with other believers there. And uh, we give praise and thanks to God for the work that he has accomplished in us through his son. And that makes that kind of fellowship not only possible, 
but sweet. And so it's a joy for me to come and proclaim the Word of God to you this morning. And I want to thank your elders, Pastor Joe and Dwayne, for their kind and gracious invitation. And it's truly a privilege for me to minister God's Word to God's people. And that's especially so, given that, the new, that New Year's is only a few days away. And even as Greg mentioned, New Year's, of course, is a time when everyone is doing some reflecting on the previous year, and how we've lived our lives, and we make resolutions and determinations to live better in the coming year. The process seems to involve a kind of refocusing on things that are important to us, so that when we will have come to the end of this next year, we'll look even more favorably on it than the year previous. And so at this time of reflection and reorientation, I think it will be profitable. I think it will be a benefit to you uh, for us to reflect on the very heart of what it means to be a Christian and what the very essence of what it means to follow Christ. If I can put it this way this morning, I want to ask and answer the question, what is Christianity all about? Has anyone ever asked you that question? Have you ever asked yourself that question? If a curious unbeliever saw you sitting and reading your Bible somewhere, and they asked you, hey, what is it that religious people really believe that God really wants from us? What is Christianity all about? How would you answer them? Or imagine you were meeting with a new believer, you know, disciple some, discipling somebody who just recently got saved and who's just really trying to get their arms around this whole Christianity business. And they're just trying to, they, want, they don't want to get bogged down in the details. They want just an overview that, that uh, uh, allows them not to miss the forest for the trees. And so they ask you, if you had to boil it down to a few sentences, what is the essence of what following Christ is all about? What would you say? Now, perhaps the most accurate thing to do would be to hand them a Bible and tell them, read this from cover to cover. The answer to what Christianity is about is certainly in the sum and substance of God's revelation of Himself to humanity in His Word. But that response might be a little overwhelming. After all, the Bible is a huge book, 66 books really, uh, written over the span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. It contains a variety of history and biography and poetry and personal letters and ethical instruction. It discusses a broad array of topics from a creation account to a constitutional law code to records of kings and battles and wars, from songs of praise to lamentations of mourning, from the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to the history and correspondence of the early church, from exhortations to faithful service to a detailed description of the end of the world. The essence of Christianity is most certainly found in this library of books that we call the Bible. But simply telling your curious, unbelieving friend or your new discipleship partner, go read the Bible, while accurate, may not be the most helpful answer to their question. But the good news is that throughout the various sections of the Bible, God has given us portions of Scripture that encapsulate the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ what it means to be a child of God. He's given us particular texts that summarize Scripture's teaching on a particular subject and in a digestible portion that, while not exhaustive, nevertheless gives us valuable insight and provides a framework for our understanding of, of the rest of Scripture. Well, our text this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, is just such a text. It is a magnificent treasure from the Apostle Paul, a text whose riches we could mine out literally for months. In it, we get a glimpse into the very bedrock foundation of the Christian life. In his commentary on Philippians, the great expositor James Montgomery Boyce uh, entitles his chapter on this passage, What is Christianity? It is that foundational in Boyce's mind. He says, it's a text that cuts like a surgeon's scalpel to the heart of Christianity. What is Christianity, he asks? Because of this text, the answer to that question is not unknown to the believing child of God, end quote. So the answer is that Christianity is about a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Christian life is about, 2014 for Calvary Baptist Church is about worshiping the Lord Jesus in spirit, of tr- in, in spirit and truth. All of life is about worship. And if we can grasp the truth revealed in this text, along with its implications, we'll have a handle on the very essence of Christianity, on the very essence of the Christian life, 
on the very essence of true worship. And as I mentioned, this marvelous text comes in the context of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And the thesis verse of the book of Philippians comes in chapter 1, verse 27, in which Paul commands the Philippians, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's supreme desire is that his dear friends at Philippi would live their lives in light of the gospel, that everything that they do would be driven by the reality of what Christ has accomplished on their behalf on the cross. And in the opening verses of Philippians, Paul is essentially modeling for them what it means to live a gospel-driven life. Beginning in verse 12, Paul turns from his opening greetings, thanksgiving, and prayer to immediately inform the Philippians of how things are going with him. See, they're concerned about him. They know that he's been in prison for close to two years at this point. They know he's been prevented from ministering the gospel freely. And they know that he's awaiting trial before the emperor Nero, a trial that's going to determine whether he lives or dies. And so Paul begins the body of his letter by allaying any concerns or fears they might have about the difficulty of, of his circumstances. He informs them that God has actually ordained that the gospel would advance because of his imprisonment. He says in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And because his ministry is driven by the gospel, even though he faces hardship and trials and even antagonism from other preachers, his response is to rejoice. Verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So far from being defeated by his imprisonment and by the antagonism of jealous and selfish preachers, Paul is rejoicing because the gospel is going forth and Christ is being preached. In verses 19 to 26, really continue the theme of Paul's ministry as it is driven by the gospel of Christ. Verse 18 actually acts like a hinge that connects Paul's present rejoicing because of the gospel's advancement to his future rejoicing as he looks forward to his trial and his result. Look again at verse 18 and see that shift from the present to the future. It says, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, present tense, yes, and I will rejoice, future tense. And then the very next words that begin verse 19 are, for I know, for I know. So just as verses 12 to 18 outlined reasons for Paul's present joy amidst his imprisonment, so now what we have in verses 19 to 21 is the reason or the ground for Paul's future joy. Why will Paul go on rejoicing? Let's read the text together. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. What we have in this text, this very complex sentence, are four layers of Paul's joy. Four layers of Paul's joy. And as we peel back those layers one by one, and dig deeper and deeper into the ultimate foundation and source for Paul's joy, we discover precious realities about the nature of true worship and the very essence of of the Christian life. So let's look at that first layer. Layer number one. Paul rejoices because he knows that his circumstances will rejoice or will result in his salvation. Paul rejoices because he knows that his circumstances will result in his salvation. Verses 18 and 19 again. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, this word that most translations render deliverance is the Greek word soteria, which is the normal New Testament word for salvation. And because deliverance and salvation are fairly close synonyms, there's some question about what precisely this deliverance is that Paul is so confident in. Some people believe that Paul's rejoicing because he'll be released from prison, that kind of deliverance. He won't be executed. But that can't be because verse 20 says that 
Paul is sure that this deliverance will come whether by life or by death. Others believe that he's speaking of his final spiritual salvation as if to say, whatever happens in this trial, I I will one day finally be saved. And so because I'm looking forward to that day, I can rejoice now. And that brings him comfort. But we gain the greatest insight when we understand that this text is an exact quotation of the Greek translation of Job, chapter 13, verse 16. So Paul is intending to draw a parallel between his present situation and the situation of Job. The passage he quotes comes directly after Job's famous declaration that though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And Job goes on, this also will be my salvation. And that's the part that Paul quotes. This also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. And then in Job 13, 18, he says, Behold, now I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. And so as Paul faces imprisonment, his impending trial, and his potential execution, and as he faces the false accusations of the selfishly ambitious preachers in Rome, who were preaching the gospel to try to cause him distress, who were saying that Paul was imprisoned because of some moral or ministerial failure, Paul draws this parallel to Job. He comforts himself by turning to the Word of God. Though Job faced accusers who charged that he was suffering as a result of hidden sin, he knew that wasn't the case, and he looked to God for his vindication and for his rescue. And in the same way, Paul knew he had maintained his integrity, and he entrusted himself to the judge who judges righteously. And as a result, he could rejoice in his sure vindication. And Paul goes on to say that this deliverance, this salvation, this vindication will come, verse 19, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is absolutely confident that the sovereign God will sovereignly work all things for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. But he's also absolutely convinced that this sovereign God will work through means. Paul will sovereignly be delivered by the dynamic duo of the prayers of the saints and the provision of the Spirit. And you can't quite see the emphasis through the English translation, but the grammar of the original language is calling attention to the inextricable relationship between faithful prayer and divine help. The provision of the Spirit's gracious help and powerful protection in times of need comes in answer to the faithful prayers of the saints. So don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. James 5.16 tells us that The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And Paul believed that. We see in Philippians 1, 9-11 that Paul faithfully prays for the Philippians. And now he's enlisting their prayer support as he hopes to faithfully and boldly bear witness to Christ in the gospel at his coming trial. And so, layer number one of Paul's joy, Paul rejoices because his circumstances will result in his deliverance or his salvation which will come through the prayers of the saints and the provision of the Holy Spirit. But what precisely is his deliverance? What is his salvation? Well, to get a step closer, we need to peel back layer number one and dig into layer number two. The second layer of Paul's joy. Paul rejoices because his earnest expectation and hope will be realized. His earnest expectation and hope will be realized. Let's read verse 19 again into the first part of verse 20. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope. So, this deliverance, this salvation, this vindication that Paul trusts so confidently in is in keeping with his earnest expectation and hope. An earnest expectation is an attempt at translating the Greek compound word apokaradokia, It comes from the word head and the verb to stretch, and adds the preposition apa to intensify it. So it speaks of an intense, eager longing, the kind of yearning for something that makes you stretch your neck out and and eagerly anticipate it. The only other place that word is used in the New Testament is in Romans 8.19, where it describes, as we sung about, the anxious longing of the creation, as the creation, groaning under the curse of sin, eagerly awaits the redemption that will accompany the revelation of of the sons of God. And hope is what characterizes that earnest expectation. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but in case you haven't, I'll say it again. It's important to underscore that biblical hope is very different than the way that we use the word in English. 
We say things like, I, I hope I get a good grade on the exam, or I hope everything goes well for you in 2014. It describes our wishful thinking. But in the Bible, hope is the expression of certainty in the future tense. That same passage in Romans 8 also speaks of hope when it says that the creation was subjected to futility in the hope that, one, it, that it will one day be set free from its slavery to corruption. Now, that's not wishful thinking. You know, there's no doubt that the creation will be restored when Christ returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And in the same way, Paul's not saying, oh, oh I just have a, I have a feeling that everything's going to be okay. My heart is telling me that everything's going to be just fine. No. He's expressing a rock-solid confidence on the level of a guarantee that God will be faithful to realize his hope-filled, eager expectation. And so he's rejoicing. But of course, the question is, what is his eager expectation and hope? And to answer that, we've got to penetrate to the third layer of Paul's joy. Layer number three, Paul rejoices because he will not be put to shame. I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. Paul, so he first states the content of his earnest expectation and hope negatively as that which will not happen to him. He's absolutely certain that he will not be put to shame in anything. Now, in, again, in Scripture, shame is not the same thing, like we might use it as feelings of embarrassment. Biblically, the one who is ashamed is the one whose trust has been misplaced. Shame speaks of the disgrace and disillusionment one experiences when they proudly place their confidence in something and ultimately to discover that that thing didn't deserve their confidence. For example, the one who builds their house confidently on a foundation of sand will be ashamed when the wind and the waves come, crash against that house, and it's destroyed. Or from another of Jesus' illustrations, the, the one who lays a foundation to build a tower but doesn't adequately count the cost and so isn't able to finish it, he will be ashamed, Luke 14 says. And from a more spiritual perspective, those who put confidence in their good works to achieve righteousness and acceptance with God, will, when they face the judge of the world, will be ashamed as they eagerly expect a welcome from Jesus, only to have him chillingly declare, I never knew you, depart from me. But Paul knows that his confidence and trust are not misplaced. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Paul quotes this verse twice in Romans, and Peter quotes it in his first letter. So it's a verse that the New Testament picks up three times. Isaiah 28, 16. Yahweh says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word disturbed is the same word that we have in our text here translated ashamed. The one who believes in this stone will not be ashamed. This stone is a tested stone. This stone is a costly cornerstone for the foundation. And the cornerstone, of course, was the most important stone in your building because it held up multiple sides of that foundation. And so when you chose your cornerstone, you, you made sure you got the best quality because no matter what the cost was, you wanted your building to stand. And he goes on to say that it was firmly placed. The picture is you can build your home on this stone. You can bring your family into this building and trust that everyone will be safe. And of course, that stone that Yahweh would lay in Zion is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16 and identifies the Lord Jesus as the chief cornerstone of the spiritual house that is the church. And so the point is, just as Paul placed his confidence in Christ as the chief cornerstone of his salvation, in the very same way, he trusts that God will see to it that he has not misplaced his confidence, but that he will be, he will be vindicated according to his hope-filled expectation. But again, we come back to that question. What is Paul's eager, hope-filled expectation? Stated positively. We know negatively that it's that he won't be put to shame, but what is it positively? 
And that brings us to layer number four. Paul's hope is that in all things, Christ will be magnified. That in all things, Christ will be magnified. And here, we hit bottom. Let's read again, verses 19 and 20. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This is level number four. This is the rock-bottom layer of Paul's joy. When you strip away every other outer layer, when you penetrate deeper and deeper until a shovel finally hits something solid, this is what undergirds all of Paul's affections. This is the passion of his life, that Christ would be exalted. The word is megaluno, literally magnified, that he would be made to look great. This is what makes Paul tick. He's been under house arrest for two solid years. He's been prevented from moving about freely and ministering the gospel as he'd like, chained 18 inches away from a Roman soldier. He's constantly maligned by other preachers of the gospel with no way to defend himself. He, he awaits with uncertainty a trial before the ruler of the known world, and a very likely of that outcome of that trial is his own death. But Paul is rejoicing, and he insists that he will continue to rejoice, why? Because his joy isn't most deeply grounded in his own prominence. Or, Paul didn't find his ultimate satisfaction in easy and comfortable circumstances and a life without conflict. His joy isn't in making a name for himself among other Christians. His joy isn't even, keeping, isn't even in keeping his own life. Paul's happiness at its most foundational and ultimate level, was grounded in making much of Jesus Christ, whether by life or by death. If Christ is magnified, he says, my joy is full, and I can face whatever. Notice how deep this runs for Paul. This is the very fiber of his character. He contrasts his shame, not with his honor and exaltation, like you might expect, but with Christ's honor and exaltation. His eager expectation and hope, he says, is that he would not be put to shame in anything, but that in everything, and then you'd expect him to say that, I will be honored and vindicated. But he doesn't. He says that I would not be put to shame in anything, but that in everything, Christ would be honored. For Paul, the opposite of shame, his shame, was not his honor, but Christ's honor. And oh, may we get to a place, dear friends, where in the deepest cavities of our affections, we consider it pure joy when Christ is honored and magnified, no matter what is happening to us. May we get to a place where for us, the opposite of self-abasement isn't self-exaltation, but Christ-exaltation. May we be freed from our suicidal love affair with ourselves, so that we find all our joy and all our satisfaction in the exaltation and magnification of another, of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist got this. John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the guy you were talking about, the one that you baptized, he's baptizing everybody now and everybody's going to follow him. Remember what John said? John 3.29? He says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So, this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. His joy is made full because he vanishes into obscurity as long as Christ increases. And may it be for us as natural as breathing to rejoice from the depths of our souls as we proclaim, He must increase and I must decrease. And even the Lord Jesus got this. Of course He got this in the days of His earthly sojourn. In John 12, Jesus acknowledges that the time for His crucifixion is near. And as He contemplates coming under the wrath of 
of his father to pay for the sins of his people. He confesses to his father, verse 27 of John 12, Now my soul has become troubled. So what is his comfort? To ask for deliverance? He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. So what's his comfort? As he contemplates laying aside the privilege of consummate joy and love and delight that he had shared with the Father from all eternity. Before the greatest trial, the greatest suffering that anyone has ever endured and that anyone ever will endure, the Son asks the Father, John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. This is what he wants. This is what will strengthen him to accomplish that terrible, awesome work of atonement. The joy set before him, for which he endured the cross, despising the shame, was the glory of the Father's name. And friends, if the glory of the Father's name could strengthen Jesus to endure the most awful suffering in history, the, the full, unmixed fury of the wrath of his Father that he never deserved to know, then we can bear the scoffing and mocking of an unbelieving generation. We can gladly sacrifice popularity among our friends. We can endure this, the disowning and the snubbing of our own families. We can face cancer, disease, and arduous medical procedures with joy. We can live our lives with next to no worldly comforts for these 80 short years. We can lay down our lives in service to Christ and in service to Christ's people if, if my Father will glorify His name. If the name of my God would be lifted up and exalted and magnified. If I can see Him and enjoy Him in all of His majesty, then for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the answer to my opening question. What is Christianity all about? What does it mean to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It means that when you peel back all the layers, at the very bottom of all of your affections, at the most ultimate level of your soul, what makes you happy, what satisfies you, is not the glory of yourself, but the glory of Jesus. The Christian life is about magnifying Christ. Is that you? Is He the passion of your life? Do you live and breathe for the magnification of Christ? For the display of His glory? If not, it means you're an idolater. It means that you seek your joy and your happiness somewhere other than Christ. And if that's you, I would just invite you to repent, to come to Christ and learn what are true, what's true joy and what is true satisfaction. Turn from your idols. Stop pursuing your satisfaction in the, the pain-numbing effects of alcohol or drugs. Stop pursuing your satisfaction in sex outside of marriage. Cease seeking your happiness in money and in prominence, and in a comfortable life with a lot of toys and a lot of good things, and in the approval of others. None of those things can satisfy your soul. None of them. None of them can bring true and lasting joy. So I plead with you to lay aside those broken cisterns that can hold no water and come and drink from the fountain of living waters and be satisfied, finally. So Paul's joy is unshakable. Though he's facing the trial before Nero that could mean his execution, he's convinced that whether he lives or whether he dies, Christ will be magnified. And in this, it, it is this that he regards as his deliverance. It's this that he calls his salvation. This is his earnest expectation and hope. The magnification of Christ. And in this... He will rejoice. Now, those are the four layers of Paul's joy. But that is not the end of the sermon. Perhaps the most important point 
in this whole text is how verse 20 relates to verse 21. The infinitely important question is, why? Why can Paul be so confident that Christ will be magnified? All of his joy is staked on this one reality, that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. So if he's wrong, all of his hope is obliterated. So how can he be so sure? How, how will Christ be magnified? Why will Christ be magnified in Paul's body, whether by life or by death? And here is a treasure in verse 21. For or because to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that is so key. If our goal as Christians is to magnify Christ in all things, if worshiping Christ and spreading forth His fame and magnifying His worthiness is our singular passion, then verse 21 is absolutely key because it tells us how that is accomplished. How do we worship Christ? How can, we, how can Christ be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death? Now we need to follow Paul's thoughts closely here and his reasoning closely if we're going to grasp this. And I need you with me. And so if you've been somewhere else for the last little while, come back. And, and I need your, your attention to focus right here because these are precious realities. Paul says that he will rejoice because he's absolutely convinced that his great passion, the magnification of Christ in his body, will come to fruition. Why? Because, and notice that little word for there, it means because. Why will Christ be magnified? Because to him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we need to see this causal relationship and to unpack what it means that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So our hope for understanding this is in considering each one of those phrases one at a time and how they relate to verse 20. So I'm actually going to start with the second one first. Because I think that understanding what it means that to die is gain will shed light on what it means that to live is Christ. So let's look just at the death half first. Verse 20. My earnest expectation and hope is that Christ will be magnified in my body by death because to me to die is gain. I'm going to say that again. I'm just taking out the life portion of that text and focusing on the death portion. My earnest expectation and hope is that Christ will be magnified in my body by death, because to me, to die is gain. Now the first thing to notice there, that's very easy to skip over and very easy to misunderstand, is that tiny phrase, to me. It's emphatic in the Greek text. It's brought to the very front of the sentence for emphasis. And not only does that make that sentence and that claim intensely personal for Paul, to me, it also introduces a subjective component to what Paul is talking about. Christ will be magnified in Paul. Paul will worship Christ by magnifying his glory because to him to die is gain. He's emphasizing that there is a real subjective experience that drives his worship of Christ. And if you were here last hour, you know what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that we seek our, our communion with Christ in some sort of ungrounded, non-objective, subjective flights of fancy. But there is, as much as we affirm the sufficiency of Scripture and the objectivity of it, if, if we don't experience the goodness that is, is provided for us in the sufficiency of Scripture, if we don't taste Christ, taste and see that the Lord is good, we don't have this to me part that Paul is talking about. To me, to live is Christ. So what then is that experience? It's the experience of death, which is the loss of all things, as gain. Now death is not gain for Paul, simply because he thinks death will bring him to some generic better place. We need to understand, Paul doesn't view death as an escape from the worst things of life. He liked his life. His life he, he led a full life. In fact, his life was probably one of the most unwasted lives in history. So Paul is not saying, oh, to die is gain. I just can't wait till, the, till my life is over and I go to some better place. No. He views death as, some, as an infinite improvement on the very best things that life has to offer. 
So why is death an improvement on his life then, if not merely to end the pain and suffering that life brings? Well, look at verse 23 in Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. One commentator hits the nail on the head that death, he says, is gain for Paul because it brings more of Christ to Paul and more of Paul to Christ. That's exactly right. Paul wrote himself in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And when he considers that unhindered, unmediated, sin-free, face-to-face fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and then compares that with all the things that death can take from Him, he esteems Christ as more valuable than those things. Christ will be magnified in Paul's body because to him, in his estimation, Christ is more valuable than everything that death could take. Now, Death can take a lot of wonderful things from us. Death can take money, can take status, can take reputation. Death can take power, fame, and success in business. Death can take away family and dear friends. Death can rob you of the sweet experience of growing old with your spouse and of seeing your children grow up and have children of their own, and even maybe their children grow up and have children of their own. Death can take away a thriving ministry where others are receiving great spiritual benefit. Death is the loss of all those things and more. And Paul is saying that when you can experience all of that loss, when you can lose the very best that this life can offer and then call that loss gain because you know that it will mean you will go to be with Jesus, then Jesus will look great. Jesus will be magnified. Jesus will look to be supremely worthy and valuable. And that is the essence of worship, friends. So the, to the degree that you experience death as gain because you are more satisfied in Christ than by all that death can take from you, to that degree He is magnified in your death. And so Pastor John Piper puts it this way, the essence of praising Christ is prizing Christ, of holding Him in such estimation that all else is lost on you by comparison. Some of you may be familiar with the account of the martyrdom of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley in 16th century England under the reign of Bloody Mary. Because these preachers of the gospel wouldn't swear allegiance to the papacy and submit to the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, they were burned at the stake, 1555 in Oxford. And usually when their story gets told, you hear about Latimer's famous line as he, he speaks to Ridley as they're tied to the stake. He says, Be of good courage, Master Ridley, and play the man. For this day we shall light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. In other words, by our example of death, we will spark a flame, we will spark a passion and boldness in other followers of Christ to suffer even unto death. But there's a precious part of that story that, doesn't, that often doesn't get told. And it took place at the dinner table on the night before. John Fox, in his Book of Martyrs, writes this. The night before Nicholas Ridley suffered, he groomed himself carefully, and as he sat at supper at the house of Mr. Irish, he invited Mrs. Irish, along with everyone else at the house, to his marriage. For, he said, I will be getting married tomorrow. He'll go to see Christ, the great bridegroom of the church. And he showed himself, it says, to be as merry as ever he was at any time before. And desiring his sister to be at his marriage, he asked his brother, referring to Mr. and Mrs. Irish, sitting at the table, whether she could find it in her heart to be there. And he answered, yes, I dare say, with all her heart, which Ridley was glad to hear. And at this talk, Mrs. Irish wept over the man's fate. But Mr. Ridley comforted her and said, oh, Mrs. Irish, don't you love me? Your weeping leads me to believe that you won't be coming to my marriage and that you're not content with it. Indeed, you're not so much of my friend as I thought you had been. Then he turns from jest, which can be a great way of comforting someone, to a more solemn comfort, and said, but quiet yourself. 
Though my breakfast shall be somewhat sharp and painful, yet I am sure my supper shall be the more pleasant and sweet. Oh, that Christ would be so sweet to us. Nicholas Ridley has loved us in the decision that he made that day by treasuring the Lord so deeply, by finding Him so pleasant that He was worth that kind of pain and suffering. And in His esteeming Christ to be so precious for Him, or so precious to Him that to die was gain, He has magnified Christ's worth in His body by death. Hasn't He? I mean, when you hear that story, what do you leave walking away with? What do you think about? Well, that man had a strong faith. No, no way. I read that and I think that man had a beautiful Savior. Surely for him, to die was gain. But you know, in a very real way, death for the Christian is the easy part. In one sense, to die in such a way that we experience Christ as gain only takes a moment, a good moment, a resolved moment, but a moment nonetheless. But living in such a way that displays Christ as our treasure, that takes a lifetime. It takes millions of small decisions and choices and preferences, moment by moment. So let's look at the other half of this verse, verse 20. My eager expectation and hope is that Christ will be magnified in my body by life because for me to live is Christ. Now, there's so much written on that phrase, to live is Christ, and, and what it means. People have said it means to believe in Christ. People have said it means to love Christ, to rejoice in Him, to live for Him, to have fellowship with Him, to follow after Him, to serve Him in ministry. They've said that it means that Christ gives all meaning to one's life, that without Him life is meaningless. They, they say that it means that He is the object, motive, inspiration, and goal of all that the Christian does. That He's to be our purpose, our priority, our passion, and our strength. And I say amen to every one of those. And we see it represented in Scripture, Acts 20.24. 20, Paul says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So to live for Paul was to go on ministering. He says it in the, very, in the very next passage in our text in Philippians 1, verse 22. To live on in the flesh will mean fruitful labor for me in the ministry of Christ. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And all of that is wonderfully and simply summarized in Colossians 3.4, which says Christ is our life. But there's one text, just a little bit later on in Philippians, that I think nails what to live as Christ means for Paul, practically. And that is Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. Turn there with me. In the verses just before that, Paul speaks about all of his earthly credentials, his orthodox circumcision, his pure bloodline, his superior social status, his religious devotion. And in verse 7 he says, But whatever things were gain to me, notice that key word gain, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I do now presently count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. There it is. How does the Christian magnify the supreme worth of Jesus? How do we display Christ to look as glorious and as great as He is? It is by experiencing Christ or esteeming Christ, or counting Christ as so surpassingly valuable that everything else that this life can offer us is as refuse by comparison. To die is gain 
means to survey all the wonderful things that death can take from us and to prefer Christ as more satisfying. Well, in the same way, to live as Christ means to survey all the wonderful things that this life can offer and prefer Christ as more satisfying, such that everything else in your life is lost on you. It has no hold, finally, on your affections. You count it as garbage so that you can gain the surpassing value of Christ. Paul can be absolutely certain that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death, because he is more satisfied by Christ than by all that life can offer and all that death can take. I'm going to say that again. Paul can be absolutely certain that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death, because he is more satisfied by Christ than by all that life can offer and all that death can take. Now, if you understand that, if that arrives at home in your understanding, every aspect of your life is transformed. And I'll only mention three brief ways of sort of application that your life is transformed, but significant ways, especially as we reflect on our lives in 2014 and how we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. First, it transforms the way that we think about what it means to be a Christian how we get saved, what conversion is. It is not by saying a sinner's prayer. It is not by making a decision and raising your hand or coming to the front of an aisle. It's not by accepting Jesus into your heart. It's not even about subscribing to a new theology, merely. Becoming a Christian, most deeply, is finding a treasure. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Out of the overwhelming joy of finding such a treasure, the repentant sinner sees the surpassing value of Jesus and then counts everything else in his life that he owns as loss and sells everything so that he has so that he can gain that treasure. Conversion is coming to worship something new. Not only does it transform the way we think about conversion, it transforms the way we think about sanctification, the way that we fight sin and temptation. We experience the temptation to sin because everything in our flesh holds out some promise of pleasure to us. Nobody forces us to sin. Nobody holds a gun to our head and says, you must do this sin. We all sin because... Sin says, I will make you happy, even if it's just for a moment. I will make you, uh, I will make you have pleasure. I will satisfy you, satisfy you. And we know, of course, that that promise is never true. Ephesians 4 calls them lusts of deceit, but they're lusts nonetheless. They're desires that originate in our own flesh. In that moment of temptation, we believe that money and power and fame will satisfy us. You may, you may believe that satisfaction and happiness are found in the approval of other people. Fear of man. Okay, they like me. They've approved of me. They've, they've affirmed me. Now I can rest easy. This is where my identity is. Or you, you may esteem pornography and sex outside of marriage as what will finally satisfy your desires. But you know they won't because you keep going back. Empty. You look to alcohol and drugs to assuage the pain that you feel. Satisfaction is found in, this, in the numbing effects uh, so that I don't feel the pain of this life. No. You might get angry and remain bitter at another person because it feels good to be right and vindicated. And that person was wrong and I was right and I showed him. Ha <laughs> ha. That's where satisfaction is for you. But, for, but when for you to live is Christ. When all things, money, power, fame, the praise of men, pornography, sex, drugs, alcohol, anger, bitterness, impatience, when they're counted as loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of Christ, then He is more valuable and desirable and satisfying than all those false pleasures uh, that those sins so deceitfully promise you. And so, 
You fight the temptation to seek sinful pleasure and satisfaction in those things, not by squelching the desire for satisfaction and pleasure, but by glutting the appetites of your soul on the feast that is Christ Jesus Himself. You fight the temptation to evil pleasure with the, with the promise of a superior holy pleasure. So understanding this truth, that to live is Christ, to die is gain, this transforms our understanding of conversion, of sanctification, and the last one I'll mention, though, are, there are a litany of others. It transforms our understanding of how to steward the gifts that God gives us. Everything in your life is given to you not so that you can set your affections on those good things and worship them as idols. Everything that you have and every even good thing that you enjoy is given to you by God, right? James 1.17, every good and perfect thing is from above, given by the Father of lights, right? With whom there is no shifting shadow or, or, or however that works, the different versions are getting jumbled in my mind. But everything good comes from God. But everything good comes from God, not so that you can set your affections to terminate on those things and worship them. It's given to you so that when the world looks at the way that you use all those things, the way that you use your car or your money or your house, or when the world looks at the way you interact with your friends and your family, uh, they know that none of those things is most valuable to you but that Christ is. That you use those things, all of them, in a way that brings attention to the fact that they are not what finally satisfies you, even though you enjoy them. You use them in such a way as to display Christ as great. You say, how? Maybe by being sacrificial with the time at home with your family. Sometimes it just gets tiring. The week has been long. Somebody needs to come over. Another brother or sister wants to have fellowship, may need to speak with you on the phone. And your time and your house is your haven, and so you choose to, to hold that off from them. I'm not saying that can be, that's always wrong. But in that moment, you have a choice to use your home, to use your spare time in a way that draws attention to the glory of Christ. Because you're satisfied by seeing him in that fellowship or in that ministry that you would have with that brother. And not finally by time at home with your family. Don't hear me undermining that. That's important. But do you follow me? That's just an example of what I'm talking about. I don't want to speak in platitudes so that I'm not helpful. We use things in a way that draws attention to the fact that Christ is more valuable than the things even that I love. That will display the value of Christ to a watching world. So Paul's joy is unshakable. He may face the worst of circumstances, but he is adamant that he will rejoice because he knows that his circumstances will turn out for his salvation. And how does he define his salvation? In this case, well, he says that God will bring about his eager expectation and hope. And what is, is, it, what is his eager expectation and hope? That Christ will be magnified. He is absolutely certain that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death, because he is more satisfied by Christ than by all that life can offer and all that death can take. And so what does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity all about? It means to live and to die in, in such a way as to magnify Christ by being satisfied in Him and preferring Him over all else. What will you live for in 2014? And if God should will that this be the year that He takes you to Him or takes you to judgment, what will you die for in 2014? What will you shape your life around getting? Whose benefits will you make adjustments in your life so that you can benefit from those things? Where will you pursue your satisfaction? What is the bottom of your joy? Friends, I pray that it's Christ. He is the only one worthy. Pray with me. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for the worthiness of yourself displayed in your Son who is the perfect image of the invisible God. The radiance, exact radiance of your nature. Lord, may this not be words merely. May this not be seed among the path. 
May you transform this people, your people, in this place to, to be so radically devoted to Christ in 2014 because they see his surpassing value such that every other rival pleasure holds no candle. And may that make this people a joyful people. May that make them a holy people. And may that make them a serving people as they seek to lay down their lives in service of your people and of the world you've given them in this corner of it. Lord, get what you are worthy of from Calvary Baptist Church and from all of us in 2014 and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.